Hi everyone, welcome to Beef and Lamb New Zealand Seen and Heard. I'm Aaron Meikle, Product and Development Manager here at Beef and Lamb New Zealand and in my spare time I do a bit of hosting of these podcasts as you'll have guessed by now if you've listened to them. I'm joined today by Esther who's our Manager of International Trade. Did I get that right Esther? You did. So Esther and Sweater has left us now, hasn't she? She has. We have a new person called Nick. Nick. I will have to catch up with Nick at some stage. But if you've been listening to our podcasts regularly and religiously, and I'm sure you have, you'd remember that Esther and Sweater did one a couple of months back now, I guess it was, on various trade type issues, which was really well received. Um, A bit of background. We started the podcast talking more about technical and farm management stuff, and we've expanded them as they've gone on because we've noticed... Um, some of the ones on things like policy and market and that are actually really, really popular. So um, people, obviously farmers in New Zealand, industry people, exporting, trade's a big part of our, well, basically our lifeblood. So um, they want to know what's happening and what's going. So Esther said it's time for a bit of an update on Brexit. So we're going to talk a bit about the background of Brexit, what's been happening, what's happening at the moment, what's going to happen. So the past, present, the future, a bit of a snapshot Um but I think we talked about this last time, Esther. So, in a nutshell, why are we actually talk, still talking about it? What's um, why hasn't it been resolved? Yeah, well, and um, look, I've been a bit hesitant to do a Brexit uh, podcast because uh, things move so quickly that they sometimes don't age well, <laughs> um, and things uh, things kind of move on really quickly. But we're still talking about it because it's still ongoing. Um, they were supposed to. Um, leave the um, the European Union on uh, the 31st of October and that was extended for a third time until the 31st of January. So um, the Brexit uncertainty mm. continues. So look, um, everybody knows the term Brexit, but look, let's just, you were talking at the start that we really want to set the scene so everybody's on the same page. What is Brexit? How did it come about? What's the, you know, where did it all start, I guess? Yeah, so in 2016, the um, the UK government at the time called a referendum on whether or not the UK public wanted to stay um, as part of the European Union or they wanted to uh, leave effectively. Um, and that referendum was incredibly close. Um, the leave vote uh, won by 51%. Um, and so um, it has created a huge amount of division within uh, the country because obviously that's pretty close. Yeah. You've, you've pretty much got 50-50 who want to stay and who want to leave. Why, we'll talk a bit about why that's a you know, majority... Um, voted. It wasn't necessarily even across all aspects of society. It was those that voted. It was 51% of and we can talk about that. But why was there a referendum in the first place? What, what actually prompted them to make the decision to hold a referendum? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess um, there had been some scepticism among the public about, um, about EU membership and some of the requirements um, of that membership. And I guess it was a political decision at the time to call that referendum. Um, and unfortunately, they made it a binding one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so soon after the outcome of that, uh, Theresa May uh, succeeded the prime ministership uh-huh. and she um, started the wheels in motion to exit. Yeah, so uh, when you don't, may not want to comment on this directly, but was it effectively almost a gamble that they thought they would get a... 
a yes vote, a stay vote? And yeah, look, I think the political calculation was was mm. potentially that um, uh, that they would vote to stay, and mm. that then they could all move on <laughs> in the public discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Is there, um, and obviously, there's. We may talk about whether that that will get revisited. The turmoil since would tend to suggest there's a fairly strong segment of the population uh, regret the decision, or is it just been because it's been really hard to work out how to actually do it? The um, length of time it's taken. Yeah, I think um, the polling has stayed pretty much along the lines of the referendum outcome. Right, so there's still a majority in favour of... I, I, that's yeah. my understanding. Um, but in saying that, I think a lot of people are um, quite hesitant about um, about the situation uh, that they uh. now face themselves in. And there is a lot of talk about, well, we voted to leave the EU, but we didn't necessarily vote for... Uh, what we're currently facing and so yeah. there there has been discussion about um, mm. holding another referendum but unfortunately that hasn't gained a huge amount of traction okay yeah it's interesting it's it's um you probably have a more direct line of sight to we interpret it here in terms of what we read in the media which seems to be a almost sense of disbelief that they're going through this process of why don't they just hold another referendum and get rid of it but it's interesting to hear what's happening in the country um to give an idea of the terms or the, the scale of, of what's happening and the significance of it, you had a really interesting analogy beforehand, I don't know if you want to talk about that now, in terms of New Zealand's been through basically something broadly similar in terms of what it means for agricultural trade and exports. Yeah, well, particularly in the red meat sector. So I was sort of making the comparison um, of where New Zealand was at in the sort of 1960s, 1970s. Mm. Um, at that time, we were hugely reliant on the UK as our market uh, for particularly lamb. Um, I was looking back at the stats, and I think um, we exported uh, around eighty-six percent of our global exports went to the to the UK mm-hmm. alone, just in lamb. Um, and you know, at that time, we only exported to around thirty-four different countries. Mm. That's quite different to. Uh, 2019, where we're exporting to 120 mm. uh, different countries, and we're much more diversified in terms of the markets um, that we export to. But the UK is in quite a similar situation. I think um, they're. Um, I think they export around 95% of their exports to mainland Europe. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of that also goes in carcass form mm. and is then processed um, on in mainland Europe. And because of that reliance, they haven't had to look um, mm. to other partners to trade. Um, so in lots of ways, there there are sort of similarities with what New Zealand has been through. Yeah, no, that was really... I mean, it's basically one... I don't want to use the term easy because nothing, but you know, relatively easy, or you know, one market taking ninety percent or thereabouts. And in this day and age, though, I mean, I can understand why they've got such a market dominance with being part of the EU. It's just across the channel. That's nice and simple, etc. But in this day and age, why are they still exporting a whole lot of unprocessed carcasses? And it's sort of something New Zealand moved away from that for various reasons. Um, I would still would have thought that the UK would have already. Is yeah. it just cheaper to process, or is that what people Well, want? but we, we moved away from that again after that sort of crucial 1970s um, 
period where mm-hmm. actually ironically the UK was joining the European yep. community uh, at the time and um, and sort of um, the, the requirement for us to look to a broader range mm. of trading partners was kind of foisted upon us. Um, you know, I, I can't really speak for why um, their industry has developed in the way that it is, mm. but I can imagine it's because of proximity, convenience. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't have the same distance to market challenges mm. that, that we have. Um, so, yeah. No, it's, I, when you mention it, I thought... It makes sense, but I never really thought of it that way. That basically, in a way, where we were, forty, well, that's nearly seventy years ago. 50, yeah, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah. sixties. And I think, uh-huh. um, you know, just to make that a, a positive, though, is that I think they um, should feel, um, uh, yeah, I guess more positive mm. about about their prospects of yeah. of um, evolving as an industry because New Zealand has been through that and um, you know we have one of the strongest industries in the world and certainly world class Um, so you know it was painful but we've come Mm. out the other end of that it's not just the I mean it's the the markets per se but I mean there's there's, well I guess it's all tied with the markets it's just that loss of ease of moving stuff across borders and so on that's going to be the real shock with some of the Brexit if it happens you know you suddenly you can't just I mean, I, I understand that you know the um, the border in Ireland could potentially become an issue again because all of a sudden they're actually two completely different countries and there's not the the commonality, etc. So um, exporters aren't just going to have to face new markets; they're going to have all sorts of logistical issues getting product in. And yeah, is that some of what's happening? It's not just uh, this is a long-winded question. So it's not just loss of quotas or access or that sort of thing. It's just you know physically moving. Stuff is going to become a, a nightmare for them. Yeah, I mean, trade is, is complex. Mm. It requires um, market access, which involves uh, a huge amount of um, probably to many people quite boring yeah. um, things, but um, you know, things that um, are practically required. So, you know, certification, mm. um, uh, accreditation, um, auditing, etc., mm. etc. Um, you've got to have, um, in some cases, trade agreements in place because tariffs are prohibitively high. Um, but actually, you also have to have those trading relationships, you know, those business-to-business relationships that, um, you know, allow customers to buy your product and for you to sort of start to drive some of that market presence. And, you know, they haven't had to do that before. So that'll be a challenge for them yeah. as well. Okay, that's a bit of the background. Um, where are we at now? What's happening? Yeah, so we're in a little bit of a limbo. Um, so as I said earlier on uh, in this podcast, um, the new deadline is the 31st of January. Um, but uh, we have an election before then. So um, the UK is um, <clears throat> is working up towards an election on the 12th of December. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, in some ways, we kind of have to wait to see what happens um, <laughs> uh, out of out of that, um, because um, depending on that outcome, different things could mm. definitely happen between now and the thirty first of January. So it seems to have been quite muddled, but ultimately, I mean, the election's going to have a big say. But that um, Boris Johnson or, or the government or whoever it was had got to the point where they actually had a deal or the, a deal formed. It was just approving that deal, signing off. Is that what's... 
Yeah, there's been uh, multiple deals. Yeah. So um, Theresa May had also um, negotiated a deal with the um, European Union. Um, it's often referred to in the news as the withdrawal agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and she tried several times to get that through Parliament um, and couldn't. Um, there wasn't sufficient support mm-hmm. in Parliament for it. And so that's what sparked the um, internal Conservative leader um, change. Uh Boris Johnson became uh, Prime Minister. And he um, went back to the negotiating table with the EU and um, crucially um, wanted to navigate the Irish border question. Um, And... And then went back to Parliament with a sort of tweet mm-hmm. deal um, or a tweet withdrawal agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Parliament wouldn't mm-hmm. sign that off either, and that's what sparked this um, election. Is essentially uh, Boris Johnson wanted an election because the Tories currently don't have a majority mm-hmm. in Parliament, and so he felt like without that majority, he wasn't going to be able to get his deal over the line. Yep. And so an election was an attempt to secure that majority again. Mm. And as he says, get the deal done. Um, and then they can exit on the 31st of January. If that doesn't happen, I guess then. we're back to the drawing board um, and all sorts of outcomes you know, are kind of being discussed. Uh, you know, Potentially another mm. referendum, um, a, a further delay... Who knows? <laughs> so he's got this deal, or they've got the current deal. Had Theresa May been through several different deals, or she never got? She had got to the point of having a deal of sorts, just couldn't get approval, or did she keep? So there's essentially just one deal. Okay. Um, and Boris Johnson's deal is also so kind of the same deal. It's just back. that there have been small mm-hmm. um, amendments or side letters that, um, yep. yeah, that make small amendments. So, but he's basically said, enough's enough, it's time to try and get a mandate to get that, or to get the majority, as you said, rather yeah. than just keep negotiating, he's, it's not brinkmanship, but he's basically said, we'll put it to the Yeah, public. basically. Um, yeah. Well, no, so he has um, said that he will then go back to Parliament, um, if he has a majority, to vote again on his deal, yeah. on the basis that they'll all vote for it, and, and it will get over the line. So, I mean, there's two things there. So, A, having the majority in Parliament, but as I even if they have the majority, that's not necessarily that all of them will vote for it, or will they will they be whipped and they'll, have, they'll vote? Is it a party-line vote? How does it work? Yeah, well, that's, that's basically what he tried to do the last time. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, would ex- I would expect that to, to happen yeah. this time too. If he gets a majority, the deal is likely to go into... F- be approved by Parliament and happen on the 31st of January? I'd expect so, but in saying that, you know, um, even within the Tories there are a lot of divisions, so, um, yeah, I kind of hesitate to (laughs) to also, um, you know, um, forecast because every time I've looked into my crystal ball it hasn't quite worked out the way I expected. (laughs) So there could be a change of government anyway? Yeah. Yeah. If there is... And now that you're speculating, Crystal Ball, what happens then? What, or what's the likely going to happen with Brexit, the deal? Will it be a new referendum? What's, what, what are the, is it the Labour Party? Yeah. What are they likely to do? So, yeah, I mean, I think um, 
I don't think that they've gone as far as saying that they will definitely call another referendum, but um, uh, but we could see, I guess, a, a change in approach um, uh, to some of these key issues like the Irish border. Yeah. So the underlying thing here is for both parties, they're... Their understanding is the majority of the citizens of the UK still want Brexit to happen. Well, um, <laughs> maybe. I think yes, but I think um, you know it is important to remember that fifty-one percent mm. voted to leave, yep. but you know almost just as as many voted to stay. Mm. Um, and I think that's been a, a feature of um, the Brexit discussion is this division um, mm. because um, you know a lot of people um, also see the merits of, of staying within the yeah. EU. I think it's one of those things when you, even in this day and age when the other side of the world getting your news from the media and so on and I think as New Zealanders generally and certainly in agriculture we tend to be pretty positive about trade arrangements and agreements and you sort of look at it and you think well they've made a mistake why don't they just correct it but it from what you're saying and what's going there's a fairly yeah there's not necessarily the feeling that it was a mistake in the UK that it just needs to happen it's how it happens rather than whether it should happen yeah well and I think there's a really a range of views on that yep. there's um, you know definitely a group of people that think that it was the right decision mm-hmm. and they're wholeheartedly committed to leaving under any circumstances um, and then you have sort of nuanced versions of that that position. So people who think that they should leave but um, want to also leave um, in a orderly yeah. fashion. And then you've got the people on the other side who you know think that mm. they should be trying to stay in the EU, um, and that all of this mess is not worth it. Yeah. Um, but you know that's quite a broad spectrum. Yeah. I think. Yeah. No, understandably why with so many mixed messages, I guess, or different opinions we see. One of the things I was just reading the update to, to try and get some background of this stuff because it's well outside of my sphere of expertise and day to day work was that um, one silver lining was the postponement at least got us through the you know the crucial Christmas period for us things the status quo effectively carrying on yeah but. After that, if it happens on the 31st of January, what do we know about the deal and and looking for our our own interest, what do we know about the impact on New Zealand, New Zealand exports is going to be under the the tweaked deal? Yeah, well, so the the deal is um, good for for us in the sense that it would preserve the status quo for a transition period. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from memory that transition period was two years. Mm-hmm. And that period of time is designed to essentially allow the EU and the UK to um, work through some of these um, finer details of their um, of their trading mm-hmm. relationship and their future relationship in other areas as well. So for us, that's good news mm-hmm. because that would mean that our trade, our current trade, would just continue for two years. For two years, yeah. and we would have that certainty. Um, mm-hmm. If they left without a deal, then um, you know the disruption could be mm. huge. Um, 
And for a variety of reasons, um, you know, the UK and the EU relationship, mm-hmm. trading relationship wouldn't necessarily be um, confirmed. And as I mentioned, you know, the UK's reliance on the EU mm. market just for red meat is significant, and that would have significant impacts on them mm-hmm. and reverberations for the rest of us as well. Yep. The silver line in that is that if they have difficulty or limited in their ability to export that 90%, that's obviously they've got to find a home for it, but does that mean then the EU is going to be looking for red meat and that's an opportunity for New Zealand? Or um, Yes, is it, it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I guess in theory that would, that would be um, the flow-on effects mm. to that. Unfortunately, we haven't really covered actually why um, Brexit is such an important issue for the sector. Um, But essentially, we have access into the EU and Mm -hmm. the UK at the moment through two key quotas. We have a large sheep meat quota, Mm -hmm. and then we have a um, significantly smaller beef quota. Mm -hmm. And that's um, because we don't have an FTA with the EU... Um, or the the UK for that matter, uh, we rely on that access, um, and that those quotas are established through the WTO. Mm-hmm. The UK is a member of the WTO in their own right, but their access is um, currently established through the uh, through the EU, EU schedule. And because they're now leaving, they have to establish their own mm-hmm. uh, what we call a schedule, which gives all of the other e, um, all of the other WTO members market access. Mm-hmm. And so the question of them establishing their own market access schedule is that the, the EU and the UK have basically gotten together and they've decided that they're going to split those mm-hmm. quotas. Um, and they've decided to split those quotas on the basis of um, how much we export or the proportion that we export to mm-hmm. mainland EU yeah. versus the UK. So on our sheet meat quota, for example, they're going to split that. They're proposing to split that 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, on the beef quota, it's slightly different. I think it's about 65% to the EU and the rest to the UK. Um, and that's, that's really significant for um, our sector because... Um, in a situation like the UK losing access mm. to the EU, if we had that full quota available to us, we would be able to shift our yeah. product depending on market dynamics. Um, and this is one of the reasons that we have vehemently opposed mm. this proposal because it um, arbitrarily and unnecessarily is distort- distortionary of of um, market mm. dynamics that have, you know, allowed stable um, mm. and consistent trade for the last 25, 30 years. Yeah, well, see, I, I, and I was just getting to the bottom of this, and I think I understand is that on the surface, that seems fair. Look, you're used to seeing 50% here, 50% there, we'll split the quota that way, but what you're saying is it takes away that flexibility that it, extreme example, we could have spent 100% of our lamb into the UK 
under the quota or 100% into the rest of the EU, mm-hmm. it wasn't a portion by count. We had that complete flexibility where we sent it. You had that complete flexibility, um, which is, you know, it's important for market mm. dynamics. But the other key point is that that access that we negotiated was negotiated in the context of, you know, the UK leaving mm-hmm. um, to join the, the European uh, community. So this is right back to the 60s again. It's, it's right back. That, that history yep. is important. Um, and it was also a negotiated outcome as part of a overall package. Mm. So, you know, from our perspective, we already fought and paid for that access and that's a right that is owed to us through the WTO mm-hmm. and it's a right that we expect them to honour as well. So what you're saying is the position based on all that that right we've argued for, we've paid for, we've negotiated should still be, even if they split, so there's the UK separate, we still should be able to send the equivalent of, won't be 100%, but a lot more than 50% of our lamb into the UK in a given year if that's what the market suggests, you know, for this demand, if we can send it there, we're not, we shouldn't be capped at 50%. Yeah, so, yeah, so our argument is is that, and and the New Zealand government has put forward a a neutral proposal Mm -hmm. that would allow, essentially, the status quo to prevail. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's basically all we're arguing for. We want to continue to be able Mm -hmm. to respond to market dynamics, and we want to continue to be able to access the, the rights mm. that we are owed under the WTO. Yeah. Be interesting to see how it pans out. But the other thing you were talking about in terms of the future is that um, one thing we, I don't know whether you call it an export, but one thing we may be able to provide to the UK is some expertise or lessons that we've learned the hard way, if you like, through the... It wasn't a hard Brexit, but it was a fairly hard... I don't know what you call it. Their entry into the common market was pretty hard. It was done. Hard Brentry? Brentry, yeah. (laughs) Coined a phrase. It was done with not. It happened with little warning pretty quickly, as I understand it. You know, New Zealand all of a sudden found itself having to change from that easy market, one big market. Um, So that's the background. I think people understand it all. You're saying we could provide help them work through what we worked through decades ago? Yeah, look, I think, you know, New Zealand um, went through a really tough time. We mm. learned some pretty hard lessons. Um, and and we've come out on the other side of that. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be gained from having conversations and sort of understanding that background. Mm. I don't know that anyone in New Zealand would recommend the UK doing what we did. Mm, no. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, there there could be some useful things to take mm. out of New Zealand's experience for the UK. Um, but not just, you know, in terms of trade liberalisation, but, you know, um, over the last 25, 30 years, New Zealand has built up real mm. trade expertise. Um, you know, our companies are absolute export um, experts Sorry, at exporting. Mm. Um, you know, they export to more than 120 countries and they mm. are world class. And, and actually, I should say that, you know, the, the quality really starts at the farm. Mm. Um, you know, in terms of the regulatory requirements that we have to meet, that starts right at the farm. 
And our farmers, as well as our companies, are absolute experts Mm. at meeting those requirements that allow us to export to 120 yeah. countries, and you know that the those expertise, um, you yeah. know, could come in handy for the UK. So, you, so I mean, you're talking specific. I know one of the uh, bits of information a couple of years back was shelf life of New Zealand lamb because the yeah. standards on farm and in our plants, we can send it all the way around the world and actually have longer shelf life in a lot of markets than local product because phytosanitary you know, hygiene, all that stuff, is that is that the sort of thing you're thinking New Zealand could help out with? Or? Um, yeah, I'm, potentially, um, although I suspect some companies might feel a little um, nervous about sharing a lot well, of that, the yeah. IP that they have uh, and research mm. that they've invested in on, on that particular issue. But um, I'm sort of, you know, talking about um, some of our regulatory standards that mm. mean that we have... You know some of the um, highest standards in the world yep. for animal welfare, environmental integrity, mm-hmm. um, food safety, mm. um, you know health and safety in, in our plants, all of those sorts of issues, um, because those are the things that really matter in terms of mm. getting your product over a border. Yeah. Is it that I mean you sort of touched on it there a wee bit around IP and lessons hard learned and technology and expertise and all that sort of thing? I mean, is it the, uh, they've come through it, but the kiwi fruit industry, for an example, where they lost a lot of their competitive advantage because it was sold, taken overseas, etc. I mean, is there a risk the same happens here that if we we help them to develop export markets or all these things you talked about, and it comes back and I mean, is this uh, a zero sum game where it's a competition and it's like a game of rugby? Are they going to we're going to help them win the World Cup, well, or or is it something where you're actually there is um, win win? Well, I think um, a couple of things. I think, um, you know, we already collaborate with a whole Mm -hmm. range of partners around the world. International relationships are important because you can learn from each other. Um, I think, too, that we should be very confident and proud of the position that our industry holds globally. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't feel like we should be threatened. Yeah. by um, others wanting to improve their own industries. Mm. Um, uh, But I also think, you know, um, strong trading relationships are underpinned by good personal Mm. relationships. Um, And I mean that, you know, in terms of like Sam McIver, our CEO, Mm. being able to pick up the phone to his counterpart in other organisations or even at my level, you know, and certainly at farmer to farmer level. Um, you know, there is nothing more powerful than getting farmers from different countries in the same room and realising that they actually kind of talk about the same issues. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all of those things I think are positive and I don't think we should look at that as a challenge to us. Yeah. Well, a plug, we did a podcast with Mike Peterson a couple of weeks back, um, Special Agricultural Trade Envoy, but day job is as a farmer, and, and he mentioned the same thing, that it's... I mean, we tend to see a bit in the media about it as seen in a way as an analogy for a sport competition or something. It's there's one winner and one loser, etc. But his argument was again, it's a the genuinely are win wins. It's just working together on some of this sort of stuff. Yeah, and of course there will be you know competitive elements mm. to that, but there's plenty that you can also um, collaborate on. There seems to be a fair bit of concern, or I guess you know. Um, uh, uncertainty breeds, you know, concern in the 
farming industry in the UK? I mean, what do you know about how they're feeling? Do they see it as New Zealand's going to come and... Do they, are they strongly worried about it and, and worried about what New Zealand's going to do or do they actually see there is an opportunity here for us to sort of work together? Um, I think a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, understandably, they are nervous about becoming global Britain yep. um, and, you know, having to look um, a little bit further afield. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they do have um, some challenges ahead for them, as, as our farmers had, um, you know, back in the 60s, 70s. Um, I think too though that there are a lot of farmers who are very excited about the opportunity Mm. to be more independent, um, more innovative Mm. and more outwardly focused. Um, And so yeah, it's a matter of sort of acknowledging that it Mm. is um, a a difficult um, time with certainly some challenges there but it's also a time of great opportunity. Yeah, and I think you know there will be there are overseas farmers and industry who will listen to these podcasts. I know I think you would be hard pressed to find a farmer in New Zealand now. It was tough, but they don't think the the expansion of our markets and then some of the deregulation stuff that happened were worth it in the long run. wasn't much fun at the time, but we were glad it's happened. So. Yeah, and I think too, um, you know, sometimes we hear, um, uh, you know, particularly um, concerns about. New Zealand's export heft. Mm. Um, you know, we hear things like, "Oh, you know, well, what what is going to happen to New, um, to the UK's market if New Zealand goes back to having eighty million sheep?" Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the point is, is that New Zealand has moved on mm. from those days. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, different constraints now on our ability to <laughs> to farm 80 million sheep. You know, for one, we have uh, a hugely increased population um, with, uh, you know, land pressures. Mm. Um, but actually, you know, as an industry, we have moved on um, from the days of volume. We now yep. focus on value and quality. Um, and that's our focus. You know, one of the stats that I really love to quote because um, I just think it's a real credit to our industry is that um, we have decreased our sheep flock by 50%, mm. but only decreased our productivity by around 8%. Our, our lamb, our sheep meat exports. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I just think that's mm. an incredible statistic. Um, so, you know, we don't need to go back to the days of 80 million sheep. And if we were, then, you know, gone are the days where we have one market, i.e. Mm. the UK, to export yeah. to. You know, we have 120 different countries to, to export to. So, um, you know, the, the risks that you hear um, UK farmers talk about in terms of flooding their markets, um, you know, that's, it's just not a reality. And also, you know, our businesses, our, our companies are not in the market for losing money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're going to flood a market, you're also going to um, deflate your prices, yeah. and that's just bad business. It's hard enough to find a share of a 30 million sheep, let alone if we had 80 million. So I know, that, that goodness puts me. A, <laughs> uh, one, the last thing I'd noted, Dan, actually, I wanted to pick your brains about. So we've just seen in the media over the last week or so that Waitrose has decided to stop supplying mm. New Zealand lamb. I mean, is this linked to... Uh, concerns that you know there's lots of reasons for doing it but is Brexit the potential loss of markets etc is there any link there or is this just something that um, the supermarkets decided to do to have a 
provenance or, or you know the, the story about the LAM and where it comes from? Yeah, I think um, I think it's part of a trend, mm. um, and you know I think you know the other day Boris Johnson, um, disappointingly from my perspective, um, talked about um, extending support to um, uh, British business mm-hmm. and launching a buy British campaign. Um, and yeah, I mean, I sort of say disappointingly because the UK and Boris and Prime Minister Boris Johnson has made, um, you know, or has emphasised the UK's interest in becoming global Britain mm. and being mm. more outwardly focused. Um, and I, you know, I don't think that those proposals are necessarily consistent mm. uh, with mm. that outlook. But I also um, don't think that that's necessarily the right path for them. You know, again, coming back to the analogy with New Zealand, um, we were in a similar situation and we got through that and are more prosperous and Mm. more wealthy today because we actually opened our borders, um, looked for global trading partners, but also allowed others to come into our market you know, we unilaterally lowered all of our tariffs, Mm. we stopped Mm. subsidies, um, you know, and while there was a period of adjustment, um, that has been a hugely successful strategy for New Zealand's economy. Um, And so when you hear um, comments like that, um, you know, I I worry that that's in the wrong direction. Uh, That's interesting. Like I say, I don't think you would find, and I've certainly never come across one out of farm field days in that a farmer or anybody in the industry who would want to go back in New Zealand now that that was tough, but now that we've got to where we are, that's where we want to stay. Yeah. All right, that was my last sort of thing I jotted down. Is there anything else you want to cover off, Esther, before we, we wrap no, up? No, well, just fingers crossed that this podcast ages well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, um, you know, it doesn't become obsolete with a very fast-moving um, feast. All right, well, I'm going to edit it straight away and we'll publish it immediately, so at least we get a few days before um, events as um, as they say, events happen and things change in the UK, but um, watch the space. Yeah, I guess just, sorry, because you did give me the chance, um, I do want to make one point, um, one last point, and that is that um, actually our response to Brexit has been a real team effort, mm-hmm. and I mean a team in terms of, you know, government, um, I mean in terms of the um, Meat Industry Association as well as the New Zealand Meat Board, um, everybody is working um, on our behalf mm-hmm. for our sector and they're working really hard and doing a good job and so I do want to just thank our government colleagues and our ministers um, who advocate for us all the time on this. Alright I think it's a good time to wrap it up we probably went for a wee bit longer than we both thought it might but um, yeah once you get you start going down some rabbit holes and some of the stuff it's <laughs> fascinating here and just trying to make as I said you know make sense of it from what you hear in the media over here versus what um, I guess you and some of your contacts are hearing on the ground over there as well so look, thank you very much for your time um, we are putting regular updates on Brexit our views on it our information about it on our website um, you'll find that at beeflamnz.com um, and so, yeah, hopefully this podcast does age well. But if it doesn't, then I can guarantee there'll be an update with the, um, the latest news on there very, very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.